6. Looks a little hit or miss to me. It's hard on an immigrant to be detained on the basis of a medical examination that barely takes 10 seconds. If that were all, said the official, smiling, it surely would be a hardship. But you don't quite get the point. All these passengers really are detained, and this arrangement is only a way to render the detention shorter by letting those go through unchecked who do not need further examination. This is not to delay the suspects, but to cause less trouble to the others. Here, however is where most of them get stopped. He pointed to another doctor, standing close to the last, who examined the eyes quickly and deftly principally for a chronic and contagious disease called trachoma. Scrupulously cleansing fingers and instrument between each immigrant, passing the eye doctors the immigrants came to an inspector who stood at a place where a large grating was built midway in the passage, dividing it into two parts, all those who had been marked by any of the doctors, and, in the cases of families, all those in the party of anyone so marked, passed up the right-hand passage which led to the special inquiry, the others were guided to the left-hand side of the grating which led directly into the main primary inspection room. Do you suppose they understand anything of the meaning of that division? Asked Hamilton. Why some go on this side and some on the other? They don't at all, was the reply. You will notice that there are no signs of, and that no attempt is made at this point to talk to the immigrant or to try to make him understand anything. Then, too, since all the members of a family or party are kept together, there is no reason why they should make a disturbance. They simply go where they are sent. If we separated the families, sending some on one side and some on the other, then there would be trouble. That's true, said Hamilton. In many cases they couldn't read the signs, and they don't know at all what the doctor's marks mean. Exactly. And once past the inspector, there is no getting out or coming back, for the two passages lead directly into two series of rooms from which there is no outlet except in a given direction. But the others who are all right. Where do they go? Asked the boy. They're not safe yet. His conductor answered, they have only passed a preliminary looking over. All that this first group of doctors does, remember, is to detect the questionable or to pass the obviously unquestionable whichever way you like to put it, and thus avoid delay in the primary inspection room. Which group are we going to see first? Those who have been passed, was the reply, because most of them will go right out and you can follow that more easily. Going up the stairs, Hamilton found himself in an immense room all divided up into a little lanes by bars and gratings. Each of these lanes bore a large number suspended over its entrance, corresponding to the number of one of the manifest sheets of the vessel, and likewise to the number pinned on the clothing of every immigrant while he was still on the vessel. When his name was tallied with the manifest sheet, I see the reason of those numbers they have pinned on them now, said Hamilton. It's all the same principle, to avoid talk and questioning, certainly, his friend said, and if you look a little closely, you will see that in addition to the big number on the card that is pinned on, there is also a smaller number, I had noticed that, Hamilton answered, and I was going to ask you what it was for, that is the number of the name on the manifest sheet, the other replied, thus, for example if Giordano Bruno is the tenth name on the seventh manifest sheet. This man at the top of the stairs will guide him into aisle number 7. Then, when his turn comes and he has moved up to the desk at the end of the line, the inspector doesn't have to waste time questioning him, and finding the place on the manifest sheet, he looks at the number, runs his finger down to the tenth name, and has him at once. It's a great system, 
said Hamilton admiringly. Why you're right at the start of it, said the official with a laugh. Wait till you get further on. If you want to find system, here I see. Two. The questioning begins, remarked Hamilton. Yes. Some of the inspectors at the desk know several languages, and they are assisted by interpreters when necessary. They hold a responsible position, because they can decide to let an alien land. You see they ask the immigrant the same questions that are on the manifest sheet. If the answers tally all the way through, if the man understands and gives an apparently straight story, if he has a sufficiency of funds to keep him until he has a chance to get work, and especially if he has already a railroad ticket to friends at some inland point, he is given a blue ticket and allowed to pass directly through to the right into the railroad waiting rooms. But if he hasn't, then he goes down this passage which leads again to the special inquiry rooms where you saw the others going. He is given a different colored ticket, in accordance with the expected objection. You see, the inspector does not attempt to pass upon the merits of the case. He just affirms that the passenger has not made his title clear. Just as before, the aim is to enable the desirable immigrant to land as quickly and easily as possible. Supposing there were no crowd. An immigrant could land on the wharf, be looked over by the doctors, pass through the primary inspection, answer all questions, and be in the railroad waiting rooms ready for his train in less than four minutes. That's not much of a hardship. It certainly isn't. Hamilton agreed, and I noticed that most of them seem entitled to land. That varies a great deal. His guide said, I think it averages about 90% in a few ships, especially those handling little of the continental traffic. Those held for special inquiry drop as low as 5%, while for the vessels bringing immigrants from southern and eastern Europe, the proportion held will rise to nearly one-third of the entire passenger list. All right, said Hamilton in a satisfied tone. I guess I have that straight, but I notice there is a third stream of people. One, you say, is going to the railroad waiting rooms, one down to special inquiry. But how about the third? That's the temporary detention group. I'll take you there in a minute, but let us finish up with the man who is to be admitted. Here is the railroad waiting room. A few feet further on Hamilton found an immense room, like a railroad ticket office, where tickets could be bought for any railroad or steamship route to any point in the United States or Canada. A money-changing booth was in the place, where foreign money could be turned into a United States currency at the exact quotation for the day, even down to the fractions of a cent. Why are they pinning on more tickets? Asked Hamilton. I thought when they took off the tickets upstairs that would be the end of it. That also is to make it easier for them. The other said, Most of these people are poor, and we try to make traveling as cheap for them as possible. Nearly all the railroads run one train each day that carries special cars for the immigrant service. They give, accordingly, a cheaper rate to the government. Supposing, for example, that the regular number of the Lehigh Valley train was always numbered 9. Then every man who purchased a ticket for a point on the Lehigh Valley would be given the ticket 9. Then, when the boat that was taking the passengers for Lehigh Valley points left Ellis Island, all the 9 single quote S would be gathered together and no one would be left behind. Nothing seems to have been forgotten, said Hamilton. Even food, for I see there's a big counter over there. That's quite a thing, too. The other said, a man can get today's food, six meals, for a dollar, or a little over 16 cents a meal, and what in the wide world can he buy for that price, exclaimed the boy, here's a sample of the contents of one box, 
The other said, read it. It tells you what their island for loaves of bread, two pounds of cooked beans, twelve ounces of sausage, one can of beef, one can of sardines, six ham sandwiches, three pies, and four oranges. I'm sure you wouldn't starve on that. Mumber, said Hamilton. I think I could get along if I ate it all. But why is it that most of the immigrants here are men? Have the women been lost in the shuffle? The immigration official laughed. They're not lost. He said. Most of the women pass through the temporary detention rooms. We are going to visit there now. Of course there are some women who will be able to take the train directly. But we try to see that they go with someone. Or that their being met is assured. The tickets pinned on them are not given until an inspector has seen their railroad tickets. And they do not land in New York streets at all. A boat takes each group to the railroad pier. And they are escorted to the train by an inspector. Who places them in charge of the conductor who is responsible for their arrival at their destination. Nearly all go west or south and start from the Jersey side. It is an entirely different matter with women and children who want to land in New York City. In every case they are detained until called for by some relative. And that relative has to prove to us that he really is the relative in question. How do they meet? I'll show you right now. In this room. He continued. Entering another large waiting room. Are all the people temporarily detained? Most of them will be released shortly. If you listen you can hear just how it is done. Because that clerk who has just come in has a list. As he spoke a young fellow stepped forward and read a list of nine names. Seven of the nine were in the room and came to the front. The clerk ticking off their names on the sheet. Can we go on? Asked Hamilton. I would like to see just how this works. All right. Responded his guide. Smiling at the boy's eagerness. Go ahead. As they reached the next room, Hamilton saw the clerk ushering the seven immigrants behind a grating. Outside the grate was a narrow open space and then a desk. On the farther side of the desk the friends of the seven in question were waiting. There was one lad, just about his own age, among the friends, and Hamilton waited curiously to see whom he was to meet. Among the immigrants was a sweet-faced old French woman, and Hamilton hoped that she might be the lad's relative, as it chanced. This boy was the first to come up. Illustration, Immigration Station, Ellis Island, the greatest center of racial activity in the world, where a million aliens yearly pass through to American citizenship. Courtesy of U.S. Immigration Station, Ellis Island, for whom are you calling? He was asked. The young lad answered clearly and promptly, and the clerk nodded approvingly as the questions proceeded. You say you have an older brother, the clerk said. And the two of you are able to keep your grandmother? Yes, indeed, sir, was the reply. You are young to have come. Why didn't your brother come instead? He has been a waiter in a French hotel, answered the boy, and has not learned much English. He asked me to come. A few short, sharp queries established the relationship without question and the boy was released from the desk. The door in the grating was opened, and to Hamilton's delight it was the old French woman who came out. After a most affectionate greeting, they went off together, the boy coming back to thank the clerk profusely, with true French courtesy. I suppose all that is necessary, said Hamilton, but I'll admit I don't see why. No one would be likely to call for someone else's grandmother. We want to be sure that women who land here are really with their own people, said the official, evading a more direct statement. And sometimes if the chief of the temporary detention work is not satisfied, the immigrant is sent back to special inquiry. How long are they detained? Nearly all go out the same day. 
a few, however, have to telegraph for their friends to meet them, and we look after that on their behalf. They are never temporarily detained over five days, except in the case where a child has been held in quarantine and some member of the family has to remain until the patient is released in order to take charge of him. That covers, you see, all those who come here except the special inquiry cases. May I see those? Asked Hamilton. That's not so easy, his friend replied, and you wouldn't get much out of it. They are handled, one by one, in courts of special inquiry each court consisting of three inspectors, an interpreter, and a stenographer, while doctors are always on call. Special inquiry, remember, does not mean that there is any reason for excluding the immigrant, merely that his inclusion is not self-evident. In most cases, answers to a few questions settle all difficulties, and the decisions to exclude are rare. In doubtful cases, a court of special inquiry takes great pains to investigate the whole condition closely. When a decision to exclude is reached, the immigrant is given an opportunity to appeal to the commissioner, and these appeals vary from 15 to 70 a day. Further appeals may be taken in rare cases, and when all appeals are lost, then the immigrant must be deported at the expense of the steamship company that brought him. What are the usual grounds for deportation? Asked Hamilton. Principally persons of unsound mind, insane, diseased, paupers likely to become a public charge criminals, anarchists, contract laborers, and those who by physical defect are unable to make a living. It seems to me that you go to a great deal of trouble here, Hamilton said, and it must be a big expense keeping and looking after such a mob of people. We don't pay for their keep. The official answered, we make the steamship companies do that. They are expected to bring desirable, not undesirable immigrants here, and if they bring people whom we cannot accept. They must take the consequences and bear the expense of deporting them. Our deporting division looks after that, and it is one of the hardest parts of our work. We've a pathetic case there now. You mean that Bridget Mahoney case? Said an inspector, who had just stepped up. I beg your pardon for interrupting, but I was just going to ask you to come and see about that case. There are some new developments. I'll go right in, said Hamilton's guide interestedly. I think you might come along, too. He added, turning to the boy, who is Bridget Mahoney, Hamilton asked, that's a good old Irish name, and she's a good old Irish soul, the other answered, she landed here about three weeks ago, fully expecting her son to meet her, but during the five days when she was in temporary detention he failed to show up, but why didn't you telegraph to the son, asked Hamilton, who was beginning to feel as though he knew all the ropes, we couldn't find his right address. Was he a traveling man? It wasn't that. The woman said she knew he lived in a town called Johnson, or Johnston, or something like that. But she didn't know in what state. Now there are nearly 40 post offices with that name in America, and we sent telegrams or letters to every one of these. But we never received a definite reply. Well, if she's all right, as you say she island, said Hamilton, why can't she land and wait until her son is reached? Bridget's over 70. The chief replied, and not very strong, she'd be a public charge, sure, and yet she's all right, oh, perfectly, he said as soon as they reached the building, we got this telegram yesterday and I took it to your office this morning, the newcomer answered, to talk it over with you, but you weren't there, the chief of the information division glanced at the telegram and then turned it over to Hamilton, read that, he said, that's the way it came. 
without signature or anything. Hamilton read it eagerly, and as soon as he had finished, that's from Bridget Mahoney's son, he announced, with as absolute assurance as though it had been signed. The deportation official looked up in surprise, but Hamilton's guide made a hasty explanatory introduction. We should like to be as sure as you are, said the deportation chief, although I think we all rather hope it is from him. But you see it isn't dated Johnstown or anything like that, and it isn't signed, just simply the words, don't deport my old mother, if you notice, he continued, it comes from away out west, and it might apply to any one of thousands of cases, my old mother might have been deported weeks ago, but this is yesterday's wire, Hamilton's friend interjected, you said there were new developments in the case, there are, Farrell replied, drawing another telegram out of his pocket. This one came this morning, and it's just about as intelligent as the one you have. Notice, though, that it's dated from Chicago early yesterday evening. What does it say? Burst out Hamilton, too eager to wait until it was read. It's very short, was the answer. It just reads, hold mother, and signed, and signed, just as before. It must be from the same person. Hamilton suggested, I think there's little doubt of that. The deportation chief agreed. Whoever sent it must be traveling fast. The boy remarked, that last one was from Montana. I've been doing my best to persuade myself that I have the right to keep Bridget longer. Twice I begged an extra stay from the commissioner, and he's been willing to consent. But he thinks she's got to go back now. There's really no valid reason that I can give against it. As they walked toward the desk in the deporting division, one of the clerks called the chief. He came back a moment or two later with a telegram in his hand, a third one, he said, it must have come while I was out at lunch, the same person wrote all three, for this is almost the same as the first, it reads, don't deport my old mother I have plenty to support her, where's it dated from, asked the boy, I hadn't noticed, the deportation chief replied, oh, yes, why it's from Albany, that's pretty near here, Hamilton said excitedly, oh, Mr. Farrell, what time was that sent? Quarter to twelve. Whoever sent it ought to be here by now. Mr. Farrell, I'm just as sure as can be that is from Bridget Mahoney's son. If the island he may reach here in time, the other answered. But it will mean a great deal of trouble, because the boat sails early in the morning long before the office here is open, and the deported aliens go on board tonight. Indeed they are going now if they haven't gone, and Bridget with them, yes. I'm sorry to say Bridget is with them. He strolled to the window. Mumber, he continued. They haven't gone yet. But they will in a few minutes. Could I see her before she goes? What for? Just to cheer her up a bit. Pleaded the boy. The two men looked at each other. And Hamilton's new acquaintance nodded. You won't say anything about these telegrams. The chief warned him. No very well. Said Hamilton. But it seems a shame that she doesn't know. The three passed through the door to the yard beside the lawns, and there Hamilton encountered one of the most desolate groups he had ever seen, sitting and standing in all attitudes of dejection. Among them was a little old lady with snow-white hair, walking with a stick, but clear-eyed and brisk-looking. You're Mrs. Mahoney? The boy asked. I'm Bridget Mahoney, young masser. The old Irish woman answered, at your service. Sir, I hear you haven't found your son yet, Hamilton said. Did you write to him before you left the old country? I did, dear. But I entirely disremember what I did with the lecture. I know I intended to give it to Mickey O'Murray, 
but I'll never tell you whether I did give it to him, and if I did, there's no knowing if he posted it, tis a difficult thing to remember, this ledge for posting and maybe he forgot, but what did you write on the envelope, can't you remember what you wrote, tis I that and the poor hand for writing, young master, but there was no schooling when I was a girl such as there is now, Jim, that's me son, he makes shift to read me writing, but he always sends me a written envelope to put me answer in so that the postman can read it, and so I neither alerted the address, I thought, baby course, he'd be here, but he isn't, dear, and so I must travel all the weary way home again, but you don't sail till morning, said Hamilton, as cheerfully as he could, and maybe he'll come by then, I have a feeling, Mrs. Mahoney, that he's just surely going to come, I'm not thinking it, the old woman said bravely, but I take it kindly, young master, that ye should t-h-r-e and make the going easy, but it isn't easy, tis a hard returnin', and me so proud that me son should send for his old mother, tis a great country this America, but it's too big, I'd neither of a lost me Jim in the old country, I see they're calling us, and I wish ye an old woman's blessing, young master, for your cheering me at the last, with a certain dignity, the old woman turned away and shook hands with all the officials, with whom she had become a favorite during the three weeks of her stay. Hamilton just ached to be able to do something, to tell the commissioner of the later telegrams, to appeal to the department, to make some wild effort, but the actuality of the group for deportation slowly making their way to the barge showed him the folly of any such ideas. He roused himself, just as the friendly official who had been his guide turned round with outstretched hand. I think you have seen it all now, he said and as the boat from New York is just pulling in you'll have plenty of time to board her. Hamilton thanked his conductor warmly, and with a final look at the group about to be deported, the last few stragglers of whom were making their way toward the barge, he started along the wharf in the direction of the New York boat. He was on the opposite side of the ship and had to walk round, but, as his friend had said, there was plenty of time. He had a good view of the boat as she landed, the minute the bow touched the quay. Before the mooring chains were on, a middle-aged man who had been standing in the front of the boat, leaped the light chain that runs waist-high across the bow, and started on a dead run up the bridge to the shore. One of the inspectors tried to stop him, but he cried, as he went past, I'm going to the commissioner's office, don't stop me, I'm in a hurry. Hamilton could just hear him, and it struck the boy as unnecessary for the man to say he was in a hurry, for he showed it clearly enough. But just before the runner reached him a sudden thought flashed into the boy's mind. Are you Jim Mahoney? He called, just as the man swept by. Yes, answered the other, scarcely slackening speed and passing him. Hamilton wheeled on the instant, and caught up to him in a few steps. For the other man was older, not in training, and getting out of breath. You'll do it, don't worry, the boy said, as he overtook him, running along beside him. I was talking to your mother a few minutes ago and she was all right. But she was just starting for the steamer then. There's not a second to lose. What shall I do? Huff the other. Go in there. By that door marked information. Tell them who you are and they'll fix things up in a hurry. Then go up and see the commissioner. I'll go on and tell them at the boat. Then, seeing that the man hesitated, he shouted, Go in there. And nudged him in the direction of the door. As the man turned. Hamilton settled himself down to run. In a second he was at the landing. The tender had just cast off her ropes and was moving out. Bridget, 
he cried, and his voice rang high and clear above the dripping of the water from the cable, the creaking of the wheel as it swung round, and the churning of the screw. Bridget, Bridget Mahoney, Jim's here. The captain came to the window of the pilot house and called back, what's that? Bridget, he shouted again, Bridget Mahoney's Jim's here. There was a pause, the captain not seeming to understand the situation, but a cheer went up from the deportation officials on board and from some of the tenders crew who knew, and the cry ran along the decks, Bridget, Bridget Mahoney, Jim's here. Illustration, where the workers come from. Family of German immigrants, passing through Ellis Island on their way to the Middle West, courtesy of U.S. Immigration Station, Ellis Island, Chapter V.I. The Negro Census from the saddle leaving New York the next day after his visit to the immigration station on Ellis Island, Hamilton stayed only a few hours in Washington to receive final instructions before proceeding to the southwestern part of Kentucky where his work as a population census taker was to begin. At the appointed place he found the supervisor awaiting him. I suppose you know, remarked his brother's friend, shaking hands, that I've given you a fairly well-scattered district to cover. You said you wanted to get a chance to see Kentucky as it really island and this, together with your mountain experience, ought to give you variety enough. They told me in Washington that it was largely a Negro district, the boy said questioningly. It is about as much of a black district as any in Kentucky was the reply. But it isn't solid black by any means. Therein lies its interest. The Negroes are of all varieties, from old-time slaves who have never left the plantation on which they were or pickaninnies during the war, to progressive Negroes owning fair-sized tracts of land, most of them still living in the one-room shacks that you see all over the country. But if you having bought what used to be the big house in antebellum days, that's just exactly what I was after, Hamilton said with delight. How do I cover it, sir? In the saddle, you can drive, if you want to, the supervisor replied, and if it wasn't for the agricultural schedules, I think it would be easier to do the work from a buggy, but with the field work to consider, and in a district as scattered as yours island the saddle might work out better, I had been thinking of that, Hamilton said, if the farmer was on the other side of a plowed patch. I'd have no way of getting to him in a buggy except by tying the horse and walking, while in the saddle I could easily take shortcuts, and I imagine, in a countryside such as you say this island I'll probably need to see everyone on the place in order to get anything like accurate figures, it's not at all unlikely, the supervisor rejoined, well, I thought you would be needing a horse, and I've been looking round for one for some time, I think I have the very one you will want. I told the owner to hold back sail until you had a chance to look at her. Then the quicker I see the owner, the better, suggested the boy. I think I had better go with you, the supervisor said. And then they won't try any over-clever work. Horse dealing isn't always the most guileless business, you know. So I've understood, Hamilton said. And I really don't know enough to judge the fine points of the horse. I was born and bred in the bluegrass, his friend remarked and so I've been around horses pretty much all my days. The census work is quite a change from that. I hope you didn't have any bother over my coming in this somewhat irregular way, asked Hamilton, remembering what Mr. Burns had said to him in Washington. The supervisor laughed. Nothing serious, he said, but there were several people who tried to cut you out, one of them especially. There were three applicants for this district, 
and the one who was most resentful about an outsider coming in wouldn't have been appointed under any circumstances. Indeed, the best of the three undertook to describe the other two. His letter was a wonder, he added, picking up one of the files, I think I saved it. Yes, here it I'll and read it, while I get ready to go out with you. And he handed the letter to Hamilton. The letter was as follows in every detail, Mr. Dr. Sir I made out the blank for a job taking census was a going to make it and when I got to the post office there was such an array of applicants I concluded not to do so, in the first place there is two of these applicants are habitual drunkards one professor or the other Mr. P was born in Canada and has no interest here except to be supported by his wife and the public and has had his last school to teach in this town. He is so immoral people will not tolerate him any longer the writer has seen him on a Saturday so drunk he would fall against people he met if that is the kind of man you are looking for I don't want a job I can get along without I will send in my application just the same Mr. P is not fair behind and is dealer in coal and feed and his father has to take care of the business for him don't consider him for a moment mister, as to myself this is the first time I ever ask for public business and I am an independent belleffer of man's privileges and always lived in this county, you have this information without a fear of any of above statements being denied. I remain respectfully, Hamilton laughed as he returned the letter to the supervisor, who had just come back with his hat and gloves as the boy finished reading the epistle. I don't think I need have been afraid of any of those three as rivals, he said. That island if our friend is right. His information, however, may not be any more correct than his spelling. It's exaggerated. Of course, the supervisor answered. That's easy to see. But setting aside the question of jealousy there's a good deal of truth in what he says. Selecting and teaching enumerators was no light job. Let me tell you. You take 75 to 100 absolutely green hands. Who have never done anything like it before and it is a hard proposition to make them understand, when you have to try and teach them in a few weeks just how to do what is really difficult to do well, you have a heavy task on your hands, you didn't appoint any colored enumerators, I suppose, Hamilton questioned, Mumber, the supervisor answered decidedly, my judgment was against it to start with and I couldn't see that any of my districts warranted it, it may be different in counties where the proportion of colored population runs as high as 80 and 90 percent, but there are none like that in Kentucky, just in Georgia and Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, 